Hello and welcome to The Last Edit. I'm Sleeve. And I'm Silver Hawkins. And this is our weekly film podcast where we choose a film each week and then we both discuss it. This time around we're going to take a look at John Borman's 1981 fantasy classic Excalibur. A film that I grew up with and have seen countless times um, by this point. So, quick synopsis before we uh, get into the meat of the discussion. If you know the King Arthur legend, then you're going to kind of know what this film is about. The story so, piece, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the mythology is, has always been essentially the same, but little, little bits here and there change over time and with different, um, different media. So, you start with Uther Pendragon, who is played by Gabriel Byrne, and he is trying to take down the Duke of Cornwall and with the help of Merlin. Merlin is played, let me just check, Nicol Williamson, and he is a theatre actor, and I think uh, he, he does Merlin Billion, but we'll get to that. So Uther Pendragon asks Merlin to use the, the breath of the dragon to help him get inside the castle, uh, the Duke of Cornwall's castle, and actually, I've started too, too late. I'll just back up first. Big battle. Merlin makes the Duke and Uther swear allegiance, and so all the knights get together, everyone's fine, they're partying, it's all going well. Uther's going to be king. Uther decides he rather likes the Duke of Cornwall's wife. Quite a bit. She does a... Yeah, semi- Igraine, the British Igraine. Helen he does, of Troy. Yeah, he does a, a, she does a, a kind of a, a, an eroticish dance in the middle of their big celebration, and... Yeah, the lust and temptation of Sir Uther get quite out of hand. So then it all kicks off again. The Duke of Cornwall and he are embattled. He he asks Merlin to use the do something, use his powers, his magic, and in this case, he uses what's called the breath of the dragon. This fog effect envelops the the scenes, and he rides his steed across the 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 breath to inside the castle and becomes the visage of the Duke so that Igraine doesn't know that, that he's not the Duke. At the same time, the Duke has left the castle and is off fighting the forces of Uther and ends up dying. And Morgana Le Fay, who is a very important character, is a child at the time, and she has this and vision... And is the daughter of, of the Duke. And is the daughter of the Duke, yeah, and Ygrin. has this vision of the death of her father happening. And she knows then, when she's watching this really quite violent lovemaking scene-ish, very, very weird for that kind of 80s film. With Gabriel Byrne in full plate armour. With Gabriel Byrne in full plate armour, yeah. Which is like, (laughs) how do you even... The logistics alone. I mean, that's that's, that was the element that cracked me up consistently throughout (laughs) the film, is they're always in full plate armour. They're never outside of it. In the few times they are outside of it, they're naked. So they're not even wearing anything underneath the full plate armor. Yeah, yeah. No no chain, no chain mail, not even pants. Not even clothes, yeah. Imagine imagine the chafing. Dear man. Yeah. So so, um, Merlin's uh, reward for this is he wants the the fruit of their loins, as he says. And later on, after... She, Igraine has realised that it was all a hoax and um, it was actually Uther Pendragon. Uh, he comes in and takes Arthur, the, the baby, away. Uh, it's a bit weird, that scene, actually, because the screaming Igraine, it's, it's really unsettling and weird, that scream. But hey, that's a minor point. 
this might take a while. This this film goes on for a while, but I don't think we necessarily need to get into that. Yeah, much no, no, nitty no, gritty worry. with the plot. We'll be going into scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so Arthur's taken by Merlin. Merlin basically wants to him to become king. The king is the person who unites the land um, and is a reflection of the land. The land is a reflection of him. So then we carry on, and he grows up um, with the tutelage of Merlin. He. Um, unearths the sword. We'll get into specifics later. I'm kind of jumping through this. He unearths the... Um, pulls the sword, Excalibur, out of the stone. He becomes king. There's a civil war-ish, which is then solved. They're all brought together under one banner. And then we get into the territory of the land-dying knights falling out. Um, Guinevere becomes a problem for him and Lancelot. Uh, and then we end up with um, Percival searching for the Holy Grail, trying to restore Arthur, and then the big battle at the end between Mordred, who is Morgana's son, we'll talk about that in a bit, and uh, and the big kind of uh, um, ending of the cycle, I guess, of the film. That'll do. Otherwise, we'll, I'll be here for 20 minutes just to <laughs> plot. Yeah. Okay, so let's start just with kind of your... Your overall feelings about the film and any specific scenes that really jumped out at you or didn't for any particular reason? My feelings were pretty mixed. Um, it's a film I admire a lot. I'll say that much. Uh, like Just on a sheer technical scale, some of the shots are really, really incredible. Like Arthur storming um, the castle to save Patrick Stewart. I forget the name of Patrick Stewart's character. Um, he's a lord. One of them becomes one of the lords on Leo, the Leo, Leo de Grants. I've got all the cast here just in case because I know most of them, but I'm definitely going to forget. You know, yeah, he's he's the father of Guinevere. He's one of the first to yeah. swear allegiance to Arthur when he after he pulls the sword out of the stone. Uh, that scene where he uh, storms the battlements is really really well shot, uh, like remarkably for the time. Um, like it it holds up 100% today. Uh, the scene where the Knights of the Round, where Arthur does his final ride to face Mordred with, uh, with his knights behind him. Also really, really, really well shot where they ride through the pathways with trees on both sides and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, it's really, really impressive to look at from a visual standpoint. Um, the cinematography is great. Uh, but what really sort of immediately struck stuck out to me about the film that sort of soured my enjoyment of it was the complete absence of character development. Like, there are large portions, like Arthur goes from this young, idealistic kid to suddenly being sort of this prideful, angry man who faces Lancelot. No explanation, really. It just happens from one scene to the next. Um, he's... And and this, I mean, this is obviously a result of the fact that they've had to condense all of this mythology into one single film. Absolutely, and it's suff- so dense. Yeah, and it suffers a bit from that density, I think, uh, in terms of like character development and so forth. Like the romances, there's no build up to them at all. Yeah. Why? Why is Arthur in love with Guinevere? Uh, why is Lancelot? There's no development of these romances at all. They just happen. Uh, so there's no investment in them, really, as a result. Um, that's sort of the main flaw I found with the film that sort of bothered me throughout. But but, yeah. on, but on a technical scale, yeah, it's really, really impressively made, really, really impressively shot. I really like that 
it lingers on a lot of the shots. Uh, it doesn't. There's not a lot of fast cuts, editing, and so forth that we see nowadays. Um, yeah, on a technical scale, it's a masterpiece. Well, it's a very um, classically shot film. I mean, it, yeah, Borm, it is. Borman at the time wanted to make a Lord of the Rings. And this basically became his Lord of the Rings. Yeah. For those who don't don't, don't know John Borman, um, Hope and Glory, Deliverance, Zardoz, randomly, with uh, Sean Connery. Just a little filmography, okay? Um, it's magnificently shot at times. I mean, yes. I think part of its allure is not only this dreamlike quality of the lighting. I mean, we're talking about myth, and I think Borman captures, through cinematography, that perfect real, unreal feeling. Yeah. Which is very difficult to properly show represent on on screen without the the use of that heavy fog all the time and and the the the, the green in particular we see red in scenes a lot but there's a lot of yeah. green to show you know greed and unease and things that things happening with characters but it's absolutely magnificently shot i think that's one of the reasons it holds up so well today some of the sequences are just mind-blowing but I think part of its problem is it doesn't go further than that. So it, yeah. it, it's all it's almost like if it was another director and they were full in on the fantasy, they would have, you know, Akira Kurosawa would have opened up with, you know, a thousand men charging across the field. So it's a bit more close and impactful that. And I think that the, the, the fight scenes in particular, the battle scenes, wonderfully choreographed because... They're very slow and heavy hitting, and you can feel yeah. the weight. But I found the problem with them was that there's no heraldry, really, so you can't really tell who's who. And in some, of the, especially the early battle scenes, they're all sort of kind of in the same dark armor, Fog so you don't covered in mud. And, <laughs> so yeah. how the hell can they tell each other apart? Like who's friend, who's foe, right? <laughs> that, that reminds me of a bit at the end when 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 he charges into battle, and they're saying. But, but Arthur, how, how, how can we see the enemy? What would we do with the fog? And he just says, <laughs> we'll use the old ways. What does that even mean? <laughs> what, uh, what? Yeah. what? Lanterns? I mean, come on. But, but yeah, I mean... It's but, I mean, the, the stunt work in those battle scenes is incredible as well. Yo. The guys falling off horses wearing full plate. Uh, hats off to them, man. How, how many times <laughs> is someone in armor, in water? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the bit where Arthur has fought Uthquat and Uthquat basically, I think it's Uthquat, basically knights him and, you know, gives him le le legitimacy along with now Excalibur to be king. And, and they look like they're trembling. And it looks like this incredibly intense scene. I think they were just bloody cold. Yeah. I think it was freezing. And oh, I don't think full there's plate any armor. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So... I know what you mean about the narrative in terms... Oh, characterization, sorry, and its development. It, it's a very... It's an odd film in that there are no American actors in the film at all. The entire cast is British. Yeah, um, a lot of Irish actors. Irish as well, yes. And they're all theatre performers. And it, it feels like that, the film, in many respects. It feels like a theatre performance or a play. And yeah, it is very theatrical. Slightly heightened, isn't it? And, and you know, no more than, than the cast kind of came from their background. Liam Neeson, Helen Mirren, you've got some amazing talent in there. Gabriel Byrne, who all essentially came from theatre stock backgrounds. Yeah. Um, along with Williamson, who, of course, I think they teeter at times on hamming it up, but it doesn't really yeah, ever quite um, get Noel, there. especially as Merlin. Yeah. I think really hams it up 
in a couple of scenes. Uh. <laughs> well, the, the Lancelot scene. So yeah, it, it's like Merlin, Merlin. Sorry, his weird southern, <laughs> not sorry, not southern accent. Kind of, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but yeah, he's off to fight Merlin for no reason at all because he's on a bridge in his shiny, unique, wonderfully bright armor. Um, and Merlin's like, "No, I'm just catching this fish, catching this fish." And down. To the yeah. <laughs> Where did that come from? I mean, it's a very. I wouldn't say a totally uber serious film, but you get these moments of levity now and again, which are quite funny. That that was really quite funny. Yeah. Let's talk about um, Nigel Terry as Arthur, because he is also from a theatre background, and this is one of his, his first film roles. And I think his performance is really good, apart from the young Arthur. Yeah. I think it's just the accent. I think it's just the accent. I, I think he plays it okay, but the way he, he seems incredibly stiff as young Arthur, also. Yeah, he doesn't quite know what to do. I don't think, and maybe it's because he's playing someone who's much younger than he actually is, and he can't really establish himself in the role until later on. But yeah, just that bit—the accent. What? Hello there. It's, it's like a bumpkin from from Southern Cornwall in England <laughs> or something. It's very, very, very odd. Let's talk about the performances then, because I think this is a truly amazing cast i mean the cast is amazing yeah but i found some of the performances a bit uneven i didn't surprisingly i didn't particularly enjoy helen mirren as uh, as morgana okay um i think that was mainly also a result of direction like some of the scenes were like some of the scenes with merlin were a little hammy like when when she puts the veil there's a scene where she puts the veil over her face just so, so she can seem evil Mm, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. Very, very theater again, isn't it? Yeah. Very physical yes. actions to kind of um, yes. show emotional. But yeah, yeah, precisely. So yeah, Helen Mirrors as Morgana and Lafay. Um, I think she does an okay job, but you're right; it does feel like stage direction. Yeah, you, kind of some some of those scenes are a bit too heightened, and as you said, especially with Merlin, and especially when he's um, in the fever dream. He's been called out by Arthur and the ghost version of himself called the, or the dream version of himself is trying to right. suck the power back out of Morgana. That's quite a hammy scene at times. Yeah. Especially especially now, the bit where she's lying down um, uttering the, the words for the dragon breath. And you can even see the little little pipe because it's not quite where it should be. But hey, we'll forgive it for that. Um, Liam Neeson, who's not in it loads. He plays Gwaine. Um, yeah. There's a point in the narrative at which he, he's one of the knights of the round table. He's quite important, but he's quite rambunctious, quite manly, likes his own opinion, gets manipulated a bit into... Um, yeah, by Morgana. Be- yeah, but before it happens that Guinevere and Lancelot are getting it on, and they aren't at the time. And they're, they're just sort- sending longing glances to one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every opportunity they can. That, that's, <laughs> that's one of the bits of the film I, I don't entirely like. The, that, that whole Guinevere... Lancelot thing. It's yeah, but it's a bit... I mean, it's never developed. That's right, <coughs> right? Yeah, it just, it just sort kind of, of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. So he's he's pretty good, and I like the um, the fight he has with Lancelot for his honor and stuff. That yeah, I, I like those moments in the film. I think they're done very very well. Very Game of Thrones, the way they're shot. Did really chuckle me up the scene where Lancelot stabs himself though. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for those who don't know what we're talking about, Lancelot. <laughs> Lancelot really likes Guinevere. Really. There's a scene just before all this happens where they're on horses, she's riding next to him, and she's like, hey, you, you totally need a wife. 
Oh, and please bear in mind that in actuality, these actors, well, the real versions of these people, she would have been about 12 or 13, he would have been 14, 15. Yeah? Just in terms of the time period and, and the kind of age that they would have been. So they're on horses, and she's like, hey, you totally need a wife. And he's like, I can't. can't. You're my king's wife, and I love you, and I love him. And I can't. Only you. You're the only one. And then that's it. He spends most of the film moping in a forest <laughs> about yeah. the fact he, uh, he can't. <laughs> he can't have her. It's, it's not good. And so he has this fever dream where he fights himself, which is always interesting, and then wakes up with a sword through his kind of hip. <laughs> yeah, because apparently he... I mean, there's an earlier scene where he sleeps wearing full plate, where yeah. he meets uh, Percival the first Perfect, time. Yeah. In that scene, he sleeps wearing full plate. And then in the other scene here where he stabs himself, he sleeps completely naked all yeah. of a sudden. <laughs> he's, he's protected himself with full plate armor for the whole film and then decides, yeah. hey, I'll just swing my weapon around while I'm on a high on mushrooms, basically, having this weird that, fever dream. That was something that cracked me up also about some of the cup. Uh, fight scenes where because they're wearing full armor the swords wouldn't really penetrate so sometimes they would just go down just by using the sword sword yeah. as a club against the armor and then they would Cross be the dead armor. just from yeah. from a, a slash to the or bump against the ar- side of the armor like like it had gone through or something well it's like the uh, the bit where Arthur decides oh so we should mention in the end Arthur finds out that Guinevere has been sleeping or slept with um, Lancelot and yeah. they fight and all the way through the fight Arthur is just in a rage swinging madly Lancelot is quite easily a better combatant and swordsman than Arthur is by a long way and he's embarrassing him to some extent and then Arthur's anger grows so much that he calls on the power of Excalibur well no no that's completely unrelated to Lancelot and, and Guinevere that's the fight at that's their oh, first that's- fight the they don't one. actually fight. Arthur finds them sleeping together after they've had sex. Oh, and then he plants the Excalibur between them. Into the ground. Yeah. yeah. And, and that then affects Merlin because he's tied to the sword. And yes, tied to the because, the, okay. because the dragon, in, in the mythology of this world, the dragon is basically the entire world. Yeah. So when Arthur jabs Excalibur down into the ground between Lancelot and uh, Guinevere... Uh, he basically jabs Excalibur into the dragon, which weakens yeah. Merlin at the point where he's basically confronting Mor- Morgana, yeah. and Morgana then exploits that to imprison Merlin. Yeah, kind of puts him in oblivion, puts him in the uh, Phantom Zone, if it was Superman, yeah. and and steals his power. And then pr- the, the moment prior to that, which I mentioned, is, is the moment when Arthur calls upon the power of Excalibur in anger, pulls his sword down, kind of cuts the armor but not much else um, of Lancelot, and then the sword breaks. Yeah. Uh, we put his, his, um, his sword off Lancelot and cu- pulls it down, and then throws it into the, the lake, and the lake, the lady of the lake sees that he's realised he can't use his anger in this way, he can't, and he, he regrets it straight okay. away. And the folly of his pride, yeah. Exactly, yeah. You can't be a king like that, you can't wield this power, you can't look after your people in the land if you're going to let anger or these petty things consume you. Yeah, I I really quite like this film, but it's very of its time in performance, in its kind of theatrical nature. But let's just talk about the soundtrack for a minute. I think it's one of the best fantasy soundtracks ever made. Wagner, Richard, I think it's Richard Wagner, the um, the um, 
producer of the move, um, and music, and he, it's just, it's bombastic, then it's delicate. The main theme, that classical track, when it kicks in, oh man, it just kind of lifts me a bit. But all the way through, I just, there are a few moments that don't quite work. Some of the, the end sequence, when the music is, it's almost like banging the coconuts in Monty Python. <laughs> It, like you you hear or and it'll go quiet and you hear in the distance when Mordred's waiting for Arthur it goes really quiet you can hear it a little bit and then it's like Martha, Arthur's got his own you know get a blaster on his shoulder and the music's turned up and he turns it down a bit again it's very weird <laughs> there's balance but the rest of it is majestic it's bombastic it it really fits this kind of period and this kind of piece really well I think yeah I think there were I think they overused that classical like that I forget what it's called that bum 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 like famous classical choir uh famous classical piece uh, da, 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 da. yeah I think they overused that a little bit um but yeah overall the soundtrack really supported the film really well it didn't call unnecessary attention to itself um unlike like I felt in um a little bit in um Black Narcissus did at times where it became sort of overly melodramatic. Um, mm. It doesn't here. It it really does sort of emphasize the action and what goes on. You're right. It's a really strong soundtrack. I don't. I mean, I don't remember any particular uh, pieces from it, but I also don't remember anything that stood out to me as being bad, really. Uh, There's a few that stick which out is, to me. Which is one of the greatest compliments that you can give a movie movie soundtrack, I think, honestly. I think the opening um, music track dun, 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 that carries on at various parts is one that kind of sticks in my mind, but I've, I've probably seen it right. a great deal more than you. Okay, let's, let's talk about the change in the end, because once Arthur becomes ill and the land starts to die, and Morgana has the power now. Which happens uh, after he plants Excalibur into the ground. After he plants Excalibur into the ground, yeah. yeah. Um, and Mordred has now been born. Uh, we should mention that as well. So Morgana has the power of Dragon Breath now. She turns herself into the visage of Guinevere. Guinevere sleeps with her half-brother, which is not great. They He ha- uh, he realizes when she reveals herself. Oh, God! And then they have. He, she has a child. That child is Mordred. He's played by Charlie Borman, which I didn't know until I looked at it today, which is weird. But Charlie Borman, and he is an evil little kid. Really quite evil little kid being brought up by his brother, evil mum. So Arthur is, is, is struggling. He's, he's slowly dying, and the land around him is dying. The lighting changes. The tone um, visually changes. It feels... If it had felt prior, like a fantasy film in many respects. I think for portions of the last section, it feels very much like that very first uh, title that it says it takes place in, The Dark Ages. Yeah. Everything feels a bit more rotten and a bit a bit, uh, a bit less bold. So Arthur, in his wisdom, sends off the true knight of this piece, and we'll talk about this. It's not Lancelot. No. It's not Percival. He goes off with some of the knights of the round table to find the Holy Grail which, of course, is very important to the, to the legend and the myth. And he goes through all kinds of tribulations, all kinds. He, at one point, has a dream where he 
thinks he sees the grail and he's trying to reach it and then he gets scared and he kind of runs away and then he thinks he's lost the grail and he's betrayed Arthur. Uh, and at the same time, by the way, Lancelot is now this um, kind of monk or priest who's trying to redeem himself but isn't really. Um, he kind of meets with Percival later. Gawain, I think, is killed. Yeah. Uthra is Pretty killed. Pretty much all the other questing knights are killed. All the other questing knights. By and Morgana. And Morgana and, and Mordred's army, yeah. And so that last little phase. Finally, Percival gets a grail, gets back to Arthur. And, and I just, in terms of cinematography, the moment when Arthur, after drinking from the grail, is revitalized. And they saddle up, ready to, for that final battle with, with Morgana, but especially Mordred. The shots when they're the shot on the shoulder cam, looking at Arthur when he's riding past yes. the land, and the the flowers are reblooming and the, the cypress trees and back. so forth. Yeah. Oh, I just those yeah. two or three shots are magnificent they are. visually. Really, they really are beautiful. And then we get to the big final battle, which doesn't last loads. It's not like some of the the more trudgy battles um, prior, but it's in, it's incredibly foggy. They charge into battle. The, the theme kicks in again, the classical theme. And then Mordred rides into, into battle. He's, he's older now. <laughs> he's got that... that yeah, that, that, that armor, armor was a little ridiculous because that's like an, an ancient Greek armor, more yeah. in style rather than like a medieval one. So I find yeah, that a bit, a lot. Yeah, it's a weird displacement, isn't it? It shouldn't really be there. Yeah. And the mask, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't have thought they'd have any kind of... In the, the, the mask is specifically the part I was talking about, that sort of yeah. um, Greek, ancient Greek in its design. Yeah, yeah. So that's a bit a bit odd. It still looks quite cool in terms of the, the colorization, you know, compared to, say, um, Lancelot's bright silver armor and then the rest of the... Yeah, so, so, so <laughs> silver... I mean, that's basically a blinding armor, Lancelot's. Yeah, the silver absolutely. there, <laughs> yeah. The, ch- the charging white knight. So, and then we end with this quite quite nice poetic cyclical ending. So, everybody is dead now. Everybody is dead, Dave. Red Dwarf. And Arthur is left with Mordred and Percival behind him. Arthur basically says, okay. Mordred spears him. And then Arthur pulls him towards him with the spear and kills him with Excalibur. And then Percival and Arthur have, have this quite nice moment, although Percival should just get on with it the first time and not ask again. I don't quite... But hey, we'll get... <laughs> so Percival, Arthur tells Percival, take, take the, the sword Excalibur, give it back to the Lady of the Lake, give it back to the land, and when the next king comes, Excalibur will be, be, be there for him. So Percival rides off, rides off to the lake, he stands in front of it, thinks about it for a minute, and goes, it's quite a shiny, shiny power sword, this, isn't it? I'm not sure... Did he really mean what he said? I'm not... Rides back. Arthur, still slowly dying. Look. Just put the sword in the lake, Percival. All right, fine. Rides back. Then puts the sword in the lake. But that last... That last um, shot... Or last few shots where Percival throws the sword. And it spins. And the Lady of the Lake, obviously, in in ever so slight slime mode, raises her hands and catches it. And brings it back down. I just love the, the cyclical nature of the narrative. And the... The... The repeated themes that that fully close. A lot yeah. of films don't close those threads or close those themes, and this film does it really, really well. I think. Yeah, it doesn't really leave anything unattended in terms yeah. of like plot lines or so forth. No, it yeah. it resolves all of it basically. Yeah, proper narrative closure. So, yeah, 
I really like Excalibur. It's a very much a film of its time, but its action, its cinematography, its shot selection, its lighting hold up. Even now. Some yeah. of the performances hold up. Um, some maybe get a little bit hammy at times. Here's a question for you to kind of semi-end. Do you think there's a better telling of the King Arthur tale on film? Because I don't. I no, think... I don't. No, I don't think so either. Really, um, I mean, the only one I would go to as sort of an alternative is The Sword and the Stone by Disney. Um, Absolutely, but I mean that's only up until the moment Arthur basically pulls the sword from the stone, right? Yeah, and there is like that, and it's a quite a fancy, missing, isn't it? Yeah, and there's quite a fanciful retelling because obviously Madame Mim is not a factor in in the <laughs> mythology. Uh, no, sadly. No. I, I quite like that. If you want, if you want to be a King Arthur completionist, um, viewers, watch watch the opening of Excalibur until the bit around the sword of the stone, and then watch sort of the stone. Because you get all of that bit when it jumps like ten years, and then get back into Excalibur and see what your experience is like. Idea, yeah, but yeah, I th- could be maybe. I, I think every component part, um, to some extent, works in this film. I mean, so, there are certainly some some interesting themes. I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but it's interesting that the film's arguably greatest hero, Percival, who is basically the embodiment of loyalty and so forth, undying loyalty, um, is the commoner. Yeah. He's the only yeah. one who isn't uh, highborn. He comes out of nowhere. He meets Lancelot, follows him. Lancelot tells him, "Hey, um, we're gonna have to ride for twenty days. I'm gonna have to ride for twenty days. Are you sure you don't want a horse?" And he says, "No, I'll I'll just run after you, sir." And he runs after him for the twenty days back to Camelot. Yeah. Uh, like and and after tests. that, when when uh, Gawain challenges um, Lady Guinevere's virtue because of her longing stare to Lancelot, and Lancelot is nowhere to be found to fight on her behalf because he stabbed himself over by by the river, uh, it's Percival who steps forward. Even though he's not in armor at all, he has no weapons training, no arms training at all, he steps forward on Arthur's behalf to fight for Guinevere's honor. And he's the one who... Go- who carries on the quest for the Grail, even to the point of nearly self-annihilation? He's he is the undying loyalty, really, and yeah. the greatest hero of the film. And he's the commoner, and I think that's sort of a commentary as well. Well, yeah, he's the embodiment of um, truth and honesty. And yeah, I think that these are the themes this film plays with. You know, the whole the whole point of Uther Pendragon is lust and temptation and violence. That's what he knows. That's what that's what the man is. And I think we see that bleed into a little bit of Arthur initially, the the violence part. And yeah, I mean when he time... when he becomes that prideful, angry man yeah. that that faces Lancelot at the bridge, that's obviously his father. Absolutely. In him, and and that lust when he first sees Guinevere, that weird but quite funny scene when Merlin yeah, that I must explain, have her. Yeah, yeah, explain like dating to him, kind of, but he doesn't. It's not really his strong suit. Uh, yeah, I think the themes of temptation. And, and lust and power, but then opposing with the idea of truth, living for the land, being just and loyal. You know, these are the opposing kind of diatribes that are throughout the, the film. I find it quite interesting as well that you've got paganism kind of throughout, especially in relation to Morgana and, and, and Merlin to some extent. And then you've got notions of Christianity and iconography that relates to that um, kind of throughout as well. 
you know, you sit when the sword is pulled down, think, for instance. I, I mean, my reading of that is that it is sort of a pro-Christian. Uh, uh, oh yeah, slant, yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. says the dark ages were when we had these pagan beliefs where it was, yeah. and now now those times are gone, and it's the times of men and virtue and Christ and so forth, and the one true God. Oh, uh, absolutely. That was sort and of my reading of it. And that's almost what the Merlin Arthur goodbye scene is. Not not yeah. prior to him being a um, <laughs> Merlin ghost, but you know the castleman um, when they're talking and he says, "This is you know." It's yeah, this is your of, time now, Arthur. Time of men and kings. It's it's your time. It's my time has ended. I think yeah, you're right. It's it's definitely a film which uses paganism to associate with the dark ages and then pushes this kind of prism of, of Christianity into the world as if it's the civilization. Yeah. Yeah, as civilization changes. So, a film you'll watch again? A film that sticks in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'll happily watch it again every now and then, just on on its technical scale. But, I mean, it is it can be a bit of a slog, because it is, like, two and a half hours or two so. Two hours, twenty-something. Yeah. yeah, or something, so... And it does drag out a bit, because the character development isn't quite there, so you're not that invested in the characters. But just the visual spectacle of it pays off so well, and not just the visual, but the technical aspects in in pretty much all its its forms, um, like the stunt work, the battle scenes. Um, it's just really, really good. So yeah, I, I it's a film that I'll happily rewatch every now and then. Excellent. Well, I, I would I would say the same. I think if you're into fantasy and you want probably the best King Arthur tale out there on film, this is it most of its component parts work very, very well, apart from a few things. And if you look at the modern incarnations of King Arthur, Clive Owens, uh, what the recent Guy Ritchie film, they are, there's a reason they don't work. And part of that reason is their use of non-classic film techniques, which I don't think suits this particular tale. You know, yeah. fast cut and quick edits and stuff. No, I um, agree. just doesn't work at all. The performances never seem to work. And it doesn't feel classical enough these modern retellings yeah they just don't, they don't capture what i think the essence of the of the myth the legend of king arthur in, in any real way they're just badly shot romances in the end yeah i would agree with you there but yeah if you're, if you're after the the best uh telling of the king arthur and knights of the round table and a very good Pop- fantasy film just in general in terms of that as well yeah um, it it is it's 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 a bit silly at times, which is great. You know, there's moments of levity, but there are great battle sequences. Everything feels like it's real and it has some form of weight, even though it's shot as if it's semi-unreal, which is which is great for a fantasy film. Almost feels a little bit like legend at times, just in feel, not what you're seeing. Yeah. But just that that fairy tale kind of quality to it, which I think is quite unique to, to a small group of films now. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Okay, well, I think that will be us for Excalibur. What have we got in store this Sunday, Silver? Um, Bernard Vicky's uh, German war film Die Brücke, or The Bridge. Uh, not a very well-known film, though it is it's from 1959. Uh, it's made 14 years after the end of World War II. It's the first German post-war film that actually addresses the war and it's a film you'll find on a lot of uh, film scholars lists over the best war films ever made um and i quite i for me i quite enjoy it as well um i highly recommend it 
Excellent stuff. Can't wait to watch it. That'll be a good watch in a couple of days' time before the weekend. Right, folks, thank you very much for watching the Last Edit podcast. I've been Sleeve. And I've been Silver Hawkins. And we will see you next week for another in-depth film discussion. And remember, it'll always be obscure. Probably. (laughs) Take it easy, folks. Take care.